whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In Jesus, God has said all that he wants to say, and he has done all that he wants to do. First, what is this final revelation? Look at verse 1 again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Our God is a talking God. Notice it says He spoke. He didn't have to speak. He could have left us in silence. You know, religion has been called man's attempt to get to God. Notice that's not what we have in these first two verses. Who took the initiative in verse 1 and 2? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. This is describing the era before Jesus Christ. The fathers of Israel, you know, were the the prophets and the priests and the judges and the patriarchs. God truly spoke And he did so in a variety of interesting ways. Oracles, visions, dreams, burning bushes, whispers, urim and thummim. You know, those sacred dice that discern the will of God. Poetry and love songs. The speaking was varied. It was gracious. It was good. So, Hebrews isn't devaluing the Old Testament revelation. But it was never complete. That's the point. By itself, the Old Testament is an unfinished story, always looking forward, always awaiting fulfillment. So think of the Old Testament as the acorn that becomes the towering oak tree of the gospel. It was all true, but deliberately incomplete. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And here we have God's final word, His definitive, once-for-all revelation. So it's not what Muslims think. It's not just that Jesus is another prophet in a long line of prophets. And it's not simply that He mediates more revelation from God. No, He is the revelation. Jesus is the message. Just like Sundar Singh said, I have Christ. And the Scriptures always pointed forward to Him, just as Jesus said to the Pharisees. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. So, Jesus is the communication. He is the disclosure. All the way from eternity past, God's spiritual Son lived in heaven with God the Father and God the Spirit, and at a point in time, He came into this world and actually took on human flesh. And what he did is described for us by John in the introductory paragraph of John's gospel where it says, 
No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So Christ, who is God the Son, has interpreted God for us authoritatively. He has made Him known definitively. You could almost say that God's an extrovert. He's outgoing. He's communicative. He's not a recluse. He's a God of surplus, overflowing generosity, gracious, compassionate. If you want to know God the Father, just look at God the Son. Notice how different this is from Islam, if you've learned anything about Islam from CNN or somewhere. Yes, in Islam there's a holy book. Sure enough, in Islam it's said that the Quran tells us about God. Mike Reeves said, but that is not what, what we mean when we speak of Jesus as the Word of God. Where the Quran speaks about God, Jesus is God. So notice clearly the difference there. Jesus doesn't merely unveil some truth for us, some other principle or system of thought, Mike Reeves said. The Word actually brings God to us. And Christ has spoken, and He has seen to it that His disclosure was set down in writing, inscripturated, preserved, so that subsequent generations like us could reflect upon it, hear and believe it. And so we have the final culminating revelation in the New Testament, the capstone of God's revelation. And it all happened, Hebrews says, in these last days. He has spoken to us by, the, by His Son. So Old Testament revelation belonged to a previous era. We inhabit what's called the age to come. Most people think of the last days as, you know, the time immediately preceding the return of Christ. Do you remember Y2K? Dear Grandma Ruth, bless her heart, she uh, stored up all kinds of canned goods in her Virginia cabin waiting for the tribulation, but the world didn't end. And you know the same thing happened in the year 999. They thought the next year would be the end. But they were already in the last days because the age of fulfillment had already arrived in Jesus Christ when God set in motion His plan of redemption. Now, He will come again and consummate it and bring it all to a completion, Jesus is the great change agent of human history, triggering what Paul called the end of the ages. So, Jesus is God's last word and His best word. In His Son, God has spoken finally, completely. In Christ, God has said all that He has to say. And that statement as I say, has been set down in writing, inspired by the Spirit. In the Bible, God speaks to us. This is where we hear God's voice. Now, that doesn't mean, incidentally, if you're not a Christian here this morning, it doesn't mean that all these Christians assembled here believe that they have exhaustive knowledge about everything. We don't claim to have exhaustive knowledge, but we do have true knowledge because God has revealed Himself in a way that can be understood. What He has revealed, He has told us. Now, what does this mean for you? Oakhurst Baptist, 
as a congregation in view of this final word that has come, I thought of three or four things. One of them is this. I mean, as I stand here before you, it occurs to me that God has spoken or else there would be no pulpit in this room. You know, this piece of furniture that we only see in churches. You see, I'm speaking this morning, and every preacher who presumes to open up God's Word speaks only because God has already spoken. I'm not here this morning in order to give you anything innovative or creative. This is why the Bible must be at the center of your weekly gathering, because God has spoken. And that's why it's so encouraging to be here on a Sunday morning and to stand with you and to affirm the passage of Scripture that we did. And it wasn't just the person up front, but the congregation was responding. There was a give and take. You know, it reminds me that to be a member of a congregation, it's not like being a passenger on a bus. Church membership is a hearty congregational expression of commitment to Christ. So, we take ownership of the Word that we hear through the songs that we sing and through the affirmation of historic creeds and even the reading of Scripture together, instructing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Friends, this is why our churches must be centered on scriptural revelation, because God has spoken. Well, this is why you personally should be freshly committed to the reading of Scripture yourself, because left to ourselves, we'll misunderstand God every time. Why is it that we read God's Word anyway? You know, we read God's Word on a regular basis in church and at home, not just to gain more information, as though it's an academic enterprise. John Stott explained this well when he said, a man who loves his wife will love her letters and her photographs because they speak to him of her. So if we love the Lord Jesus, we shall love the Bible because it speaks to us of Him. We love the Bible because of Christ. It is His portrait. It is His love letter. So, my Christian friend, commit yourself to the regular reading of Scripture. Approach it systematically, earnestly. Devote yourself more seriously to the hearing of God's Word, Sunday by Sunday, because God has spoken, and He has done so once and for all in His beloved Son. Well, the second thing that I think this means for you as a congregation, the fact that God has spoken definitively in Christ, it's that God has spoken, and nothing more need be said. It is a sufficient, a once-and-for-all revelation set down in Scripture. Nothing could possibly be added to it. Now, some have wanted to say that Christ is our final authority and not the Bible, as though they're somehow pitted against each other, Christ versus the Bible. And, you know, I agree with half of that. It is true that Christ is our supreme authority, but He has spoken, and He is ruling His congregations through the written Word. So, His Word is merely an expression of His character, of His intimate presence with us, even this morning. So, don't let anyone drive a wedge between Christ and His Word. John Frame said, 
When we encounter the Word of God, we encounter God. When we encounter God, we encounter His Word. Whenever God's Word is spoken, read, or heard, God Himself is there. Well, sadly, there's been so much misunderstanding about this. We've seen a lot of it in Arabia. Uh, I'll never forget having a conversation with a, a dear Iranian woman who actually said to me, I don't believe Jesus loves me because he's not revealed himself to me in a dream like he has to these other people. It was her understanding that Jesus was directly revealing himself to people in dreams, and if he didn't do it to her, then she must be a second-class citizen. But it made me think about 1 Peter 1.6, where Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. The assumption of Peter was that these first century Christians in Asia Minor had not seen Christ. And what had Jesus said before him at the resurrection? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Friends, it is not visions and dreams. It is the Bible that we need most. Of course, that means you need to read it. Do the hard work of explaining, teaching, understanding it. Thomas Manton, great Puritan, said, Some desire to have Christ speak from heaven as he did to Paul. Neglecting the word, they want miracles to save them from the pains of study, prayer, and discourse. You could call it shortcut spirituality. Friends, God's purposes and his plans have been opened to us through the book an inspired book, a book like none other. So with prayer and study, we can know Him and we can enjoy Him in and through the life-giving Word. And so be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's Word is sufficient. And then let me suggest a third thing that this says to Oakhurst Baptist. God has spoken and therefore... We must heed what it says. We must heed it. Obey it. You know, Jesus one time asked some people, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And you do not do what I say. If God has really spoken, it's not enough to hear His words and understand them. It's not enough to hear them and remember them. It's not enough to hear them and debate them. No, we are to hear them and obey them because He has spoken. Just remember, Jesus not only saves His people, He transforms His people, right? When we're united to Christ, we receive the empowerment, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're enabled then to walk in a new way of life. Never perfectly in this fallen world, but substantially, observably different from the way we were before. Take heart. Press into Christ. Know Him and resolve not only to hear His Word on Sundays, but to heed His Word. The fruit of true salvation is a changed life. And then a final one. As we think about the extraordinary truth that God has spoken finally and definitively in His Son. God has spoken and therefore we must speak. 
I know you've heard that we're all climbing the mountain and we'll all meet at the top regardless of our religious background. That's not true. Other religions are not legitimate pathways to God, at least not according to Christ in the New Testament. My daughter Chloe was taking a Greek philosophy class at university, and there's great value in that. But as wise as were the insights of Plato and Aristotle, the world through its wisdom did not know God. Friends, we must speak or a generation will perish outside of Christ. And remember, when we speak the Word of God, we are unleashing the most powerful instrument in the, word, in the world. I mean in your workplace and in your neighborhood. When you have opportunity to explain the good news, what it is that you're living for, it will accomplish the purpose for which God is sending it out. Here's an example of the power of the gospel. One of my favorites. 18th century revival, the Great Awakening happening on both sides of the Atlantic. George Whitfield, probably the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. He was addressing crowds of 10,000, 20,000. He's 22 years old. He's extraordinarily gifted to be able to project so that all these people can hear him. Greatest open-air preacher since Paul. He was locked out of the Anglican churches because he was preaching that people needed to be born again. And as a result, he began to preach outside, in the fields, where providentially he had access to hundreds of thousands of more people. But out there, he would sometimes face vegetables, rotten eggs, potatoes, turnips, all kinds of projectiles. C.H. Spurgeon tells how Whitfield was hounded by a group of detractors who called themselves the Hellfire Club. When Whitfield would stand outside preaching, this group of, of uh, imitators would stand far off to the side and mimic him. They didn't believe a word of what they were saying. Spurgeon said the ringleader was called Thorpe. One day Thorpe was mimicking Whitfield to his cronies, delivering the sermon with brilliant accuracy, perfectly Im imitating his tone and facial expressions when he himself was so pierced that he sat down and was converted on the spot. The Word of God has power, incomparable power. And therefore, since God has spoken, we must speak. J.I. Packer said, wise and foolish, rich and poor, young and old, white and black, we are by nature all together in the same boat, apart from Christ. We cannot know God. But in Christ, heaven came down to earth. We have a final revelation in Christ. And we have something else. Secondly, a superior salvation. A superior salvation. Just look at how the Son is described in verse 2. Look there at verse 2. In these last days He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So here we have, if you break it down and look at it carefully, perhaps this afternoon, we have seven statements about the supremacy of Christ 
matching seven Old Testament quotations in the rest of the chapter. Notice that later today. The writer goes on to make seven quotations from the Old Testament matched by these seven statements of the supremacy of Christ. I mean, is there any Savior mightier than Him? Boil it down to just seven words. Seven words. Word number one, inheritance. He was, verse 2, appointed the heir of all things. All planet earth has been given to Him. Now, if you're a Bible reader, you know that Old, Old Testament inheritance language refers to the land of Canaan, promised to Israel. But Christ is the heir of the whole planet. As Psalm 2 puts it, ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So, all authority is His, is his in heaven and on earth. And this is all tied to Jesus' role as the Davidic king, the Messiah in the line of David. He's a human king, but then he's much more than that. Consider word number two, creator of this universe. Look at verse two. Through whom also he created the world. So the eternal son who existed for eternity past was the agent through whom God made everything at the beginning. So he is the sovereign maker. And we see the same thing in John 1. We read it earlier in Colossians 1. Where did Jesus really come from? Not Nazareth. Not Bethlehem. He said he came from above. He says he was there at the beginning when countless billions of galaxies were made, each comprising billions of stars. It reminds me of a couple summers ago I was with my family driving through nowhere, Arizona. We had been to the Grand Canyon, driving back toward Texas. Late at night, no light pollution out there. Nothing for miles around. And we were on our way home, having been amazed by the Grand Canyon, and we pulled over and stopped, and we got out. And as I got out, I was mainly thinking, what if the asphalt is still warm and rattlesnakes have moved on to it? I was distracted by that until I looked up. And what I saw coursing through the heavens was like a sheet of white that is the strand of the Milky Way galaxy. And in that environment, with no light pollution at all, the concentrated stars are such that you can't really pick out individual stars at all. There's just so many of them some 200 billion of them in just that strand of the Milky Way galaxy, not considering all the other billions of galaxies. And Jesus Christ created them, knows them all by name, stupendous creative power. It was staggering to contemplate that day outside near the Grand Canyon. But the question is, do we live as though that's really true? Do we live as though Jesus Christ is the maker of the universe? Mike Reeves spoke of a sneaking suspicion Christians have that while Jesus is a Savior, He's not really the creator of all. So they sing of His love on Sunday, and there it is true. But walking home through the streets, past the people and places where real life goes on, 
They don't feel it is Christ's world. And then he says this. It's as if Jesus is something we've smeared on the top of real life. Jesus is reduced to being little more than a comforting nibble of spiritual chocolate, an imaginary friend who saves souls but not much else. Friend, is it possible that that's become true of you? Have you begun to underestimate the majesty of this person that we're talking about? Are you living your life as though Jesus Christ is not really God, the creator of the universe? As though he's really not the owner of all things because he made them all. And since he made you and owns you, he can tell you what to do. His blueprint for your life, for your sexuality, for your ambition, for your finances. He has final say and sway. We're talking about someone who's in the driving seat of the universe. He's about more than just saving souls. He's the Lord of all of life. This, my friends, is why Christ can be heir of everything because He made everything. This universe always belonged to the eternal Son, but now as the resurrected Lord, the God-man, He rules over what was created by Him in the beginning. Word number three, radiance. You see that in verse three. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Not like the moon reflecting, but more like the sun shining, a magnificence, a splendor of glory. Jesus of Nazareth is fully God, shining His glory forth. So in Christ, the Old Testament spotlight of God's glory has become a laser beam. It was scattered in brilliance in the Old Testament, and now it's concentrated down to shine on the face of Jesus Christ, the mirror image of the Father. All of God's fullness, all of His excellency was pleased to dwell in Him, just like the Apostle John saw in Revelation 1. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Donald MacLeod said, the Father is the glory hidden, the Son is His glory revealed. And so the church has always affirmed for 2,000 years, as we say in the Nicene Creed, light from light, true God from true God begotten, not made, of the same essence with the Father, through whom all things were made. He is shining the radiance, the brilliance, the wonder of the glory of God. Word number four, character. He is the exact imprint of His nature. In the original, the word is simply character. In other words, there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus Christ. Jesus is the final superior revelation of the Father. And so there is no dark side to the Father. Jesus is the stamp, the imprimatur, the imprint on the coin. So if Jesus is the friend of sinners... God the Father is the friend of sinners. As Jesus once said to a friend, simply, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And that means the greatest divine encounter you can possibly have is not taking a pilgrimage to Mecca or the Ganges River. It is not psychedelic drugs or a mystical experience. 
It's a personal relationship with the living, resurrected Christ. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Okay, word number five, sustainer. Sustainer. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He didn't make the world and then step back from it and watch it run on its own. Rather, he remained immediately, intimately involved, upholding, sustaining, directing all things to their appointed end. So it's not like Atlas. You know, he's carrying the dead weight of the world on his shoulders, passively supporting it. No, this is talking about a more directive, intimate guidance toward the goal of the world. As we saw earlier in Colossians 1.17, in him all things hold together. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus, I say, is in the driving seat of the whole universe. He is here with us today. He is exerting control, even in your minds and in this public worship, receiving glory, being honored. There was the fifth grader. She was talking with her mother in the kitchen. She asked, is God in the living room? To which the mother replied, yes. Is God in the kitchen? Yes, she said. Am I stepping on God? No, not quite, was her reply. And she went on to explain that God is not matter, but is spirit, and yet he is here. So the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ is among us, along with Father and Spirit. He is beyond all, and yet he is in all, interpenetrating all, sustaining all things. How does he do it? Well, it says, by the word of his power. So, not the laws of nature ultimately, but his life-giving word. Your heart is beating today, only at his permission, only because Christ has ordained it, not ultimately for your purposes. Your heart is beating today for his purposes. This is the sovereign Christ, the heir, creator, radiance, character, sustainer of the universe. Friends, this is the one we need. Because only he was qualified to move from creator to redeemer. Which brings us then to word number six. Cleansing. Cleansing. Where do you, th- where do you think we see that in the passage? Verse three. After making purification for sins. Well, this is the work that he came to do. And only he could do it. You know, it's interesting in this introduction, it sounds almost like a throwaway, sort of an aside, after making purification for sins, but he'll come back to that later in Hebrews. And yet this purification was the cosmic achievement of world history. In his death on the cross, Christ made, the word here is purification, but from what? Purification from spiritual pollution. I mean a corrosion that is constantly accumulating upon us. You know, living in a world gone bad. Toxic influences and ideas calling out to us, and so we get dirtied. But our problem isn't mainly the stuff out there. Our problem is the stuff in here. It originates in the heart. You see, sin is not first and foremost something that we do. It's who we are. 
It's not something that's on us externally. It's something that's in us at the very core. Friends, we are characterized by spiritual pollution. But the good news is, Jesus Christ came to purify us, to bear our sin at the cross where He exchanged His righteousness for our guilt, His purity for our pollution. This is the best news in the world. My numerous sins transferred to Him shall never more be found, lost in His blood's atoning stream where every crime is drowned. Is it not astonishing to you that the living God, the author of life, came into this world, took on flesh, and suffered the indignity of death in the place of unworthy, lawless sinners? Why did He do it? A.W. Tozer said, the aborigine in his hut, the college professor in his study, the truck driver in the bedlam of the city all have the same need, to be rid of their sins. This cosmic Christ, this radiance of God's glory, the one who inherited the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, he came into the world on a rescue mission. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And if you are here as one who has not been reconciled to God, not made right with God, you came in this room today, you know that you're guilty before Him. Take heart. We have the best news in the world because this Christ who was crucified to make purification for sins like yours and like mine, God raised Him from the dead on the third day. You know, I'm no different from you. From 1992 to 1995, I lived in Fourth Ward. I worked for a law firm here. I was unimaginably lost. And then God rescued me. I moved to Washington, D.C. I was living in a neighborhood. I began walking around and jogging around the neighborhood. I saw a church began to attend, thought maybe I'd do my civic duty or make some political connections up there. But I started hearing this message preached. I didn't particularly like it at first, what it said about me, what it said about God. And I got to know the pastor, and he met me, and we would get together on Wednesday mornings before church. And he just began to teach me the Bible. I'd grown up going to churches, so I was familiar with it. But over time, I came under increasing conviction of sin, that this is a holy God. And I was not in a right place with Him. I needed to be reconciled. And there was only one person who could do it. There was only one mediator between God and men. And it's this one who obtained purification for sins. And if anyone here is not in Christ, I would just invite you to talk to the pastor of this church. Talk to me afterward. Continue coming along, learning more. Come here with an open mind. You're, you're, you're an intelligent person who can engage directly with God through His Word. Turn from your sin. Even this morning, put your trust in Christ. It's the best news in the world. Jesus came to save sinners. You know, salvation is not about making you feel better. It's about removing your guilt and giving you a new relationship with God. You see, Jesus is no longer in the grave. He's been raised. And then what? Well, consider the seventh and final word. He's seated. Do you see that? He sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, some of us try to read through the Bible every year. And uh, I commend that practice. I've been doing it since 2003. I love it. But there are particular points where it becomes more difficult. You get to uh, Genesis, fascinating. You all have been in Genesis for a year. Incredible stories, amazing things God's doing. Move over to Exodus. There's that famous deliverance story of God's imprisoned people out of Egypt. But then you get to the second half of Exodus. And it starts giving you all the architectural blueprints of the tabernacle. And you wonder chapter after chapter of this detailed architectural analysis. Why is all that there? Then you keep reading and you get to Leviticus. You read more about the temple elsewhere in the Bible. But there's one thing that you notice when you read about the temple in Jerusalem. There were no chairs there. Do you know why that is? Because the Old Testament priests never sat down. There was always more offerings, more sacrifices to be given, standing, ministering, administering. No sacrifice was ever complete. Turn with me now to chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What did Jesus say from the cross? It is finished. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. My friends, in Jesus, we have a final revelation and we have a superior salvation. In Him, God has said all that He wants to say. And He has done all that He wants to do. And friends, isn't this the reason you got out of bed this morning? Isn't this the reason why this church was built in the 1950s? And why God has chosen to revitalize it in recent years? Because Christ came to save sinners and he reigns over the universe. And isn't that the whole reason for the missionary enterprise? Why I'm so encouraged to hear about your missions-mindedness and your desire to engage meaningfully with work happening in Russia and Arabia and the hardest places in the world. I mean, isn't this why Satir Singh said, not of a new philosophy, not of a new technique or principle, but of a new relationship. He said, He'd found Christ. That's what we're inviting you to find if you're one who's here as not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you are a follower of Christ, what's a final exhortation for you? Well, I think of a woman from church history named Sarah Hosman, who you may not have heard of. Sarah Hosman was only the fifth Western woman ever to step foot in Arabia. 
She studied medicine at University of Illinois. She became licensed as a medical doctor. And after hearing a challenging address by the pioneer missionary Samuel Zwamer, who took the gospel to Arabia in the late 1800s, she became convinced of the need for women doctors in Arabia, and she resolved to go herself. She was trained. She was equipped. So in the year 1911, she arrived in Bahrain, and she studied Arabic for two years, and then she lived in tents and palm frond huts in blistering heat long before air conditioning. And she famously rode a donkey throughout Oman. She traveled up and down the coast of what then was called the Pirate Coast. How culturally strange do you think it was in Arabia in the early 1900s for this Western, unmarried, handicapped medical doctor? She had had an injury. She had a, a wooden leg years before. And yet there she is riding along on her donkey from village to village, along the pirate coast, foreigners had been banned from those villages years before, but she had access. There she was, among the Arabian people. She could enter into these villages when no one else can. And she once wrote, I praise God for His wonderful faith, faithfulness in opening closed doors to me, for Arabia is a closed country. And it was always said of Dr. Sarah, her approach was always the same. She gave the gospel message at every opportunity. And after a many decade-long career of uh, medical service, her breakthrough came in 1951. She saved the favorite wife of an Arab sheikh through a critical delivery. And Sarah, as a result, was asked by the Muslim ruler to start a maternity hospital in his emirate the emirate of Sharjah, just to the north of Dubai where we are. And this would become a permanent base for Christian mission for the next two, three decades. There would be Bible readings twice a day. There would be one-to-one -one evangelism. You know Doug and uh, Sharon Cousineau, their daughter Rachel? She was born at this hospital. There were church meetings there. There was scripture distributed to all of the Arab women who would come in for maternity help and other medical treatment. Years later, one worker in the maternity hospital said of the Arabic New Testament, she said the majority of the local women took it home. So most extended families in Sharjah had some portion of the Bible. But long before any of that happened, here was Sarah Hosman negotiating with an Arab sheikh. Just imagine the power dynamic in that conversation. I mean, here you have on the one hand a wealthy, powerful ruler, an oriental ruler who had total sovereignty in, in his emirate, and on the other hand, you have this female, handicapped, Western, unmarried medical doctor. After the sheikh promised to give Sarah a house in which to work, they began to discuss the arrangement. And the sheikh began to express some discomfort about the Christian character of the ministry. Didn't exactly like the idea of Christians having a foothold there. But Sarah replied to him with courage, and with candor, she said this, I thank you, but your highness, I am a missionary. I will give the gospel. That was her priority. But is it yours? Are you committed to give the gospel to those who are perishing outside of Christ? The cosmic Christ. The purifying Christ.
Let's pray. Lord, how good you are to have revealed these things to us in your word. How wonderful is the appearing of God the Son in the person of Jesus Christ on a rescue mission for unworthy sinners like us. Lord, we celebrate this truth this morning. We pray that you would be honored more and more in the life of this congregation. Lord, we pray that as we sing this final song, you would emblazon these truths upon our hearts and that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds, that you would remake us, reshape us, equip us, Lord, to bear more faithful witness with all of our our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.